Futurize goes beneath the trends to track the underlying forces of disruption in tech, policy, business models, social dynamics, and the environment. I'm your host, Trun Arnevenheim, futurist and author. In episode 77 of the podcast, the topic is how to fix fake news. Our guest is Sebastian van der Lans, founder of WordProof, the startup using blockchain to authenticate content on the internet. In this conversation, we talk about how to fix fake news, the players in the internet content industry, uh, the emerging challenges such as digital rights management, interoperability, fake news, copyright infringement or protection, and trust on the internet. We talk about the potential solutions such as watermarking, DRM schemes, open source, blockchain, timestamping, and schema.org, as well as search engine content authenticity validation. We discuss emerging use cases, disruptive forces, and the future of the internet. Sebastian, how are you today? Fine, how are you? I'm doing great, I'm doing great. It's a fantastic day to talk about fake news. I wanted to jump straight into it, Sebastian. First off, you're a major web person. You've been in this open source world, combined with marketing, combined with DJing, I understand, for a long time. How did you get into this? Ooh, I, yeah, I'm a, I consider myself an open source nerd for almost half of my life, 32 years old now. So uh, yeah, I started my first official company uh, 15 and a half years ago. So um, how did I get into this? That's actually a funny story. So on high school, a friend of mine, he was a great programmer and he was in love with a girl and I was the DJ at the school parties. So he said, okay, if I teach you to program, I was 14 by then, uh, can I maybe ask you to, uh, yeah, DJ this song or play this song for me so I can ask Rosa to dance with me. So that's how my programming adventure started. I love it. That's a great, that's a great start. That's a great start. And then um, my second question is this, you know, the internet uh, is, is in trouble right now, arguably. Um, and uh, there are many players in the internet space. There are a lot of content providers. Some people own content. Others are trying to police content. And we're all trying to link up to it and, and stay up to date and uh, connect with our friends. And essentially, that's the internet. Tell, tell me, how did we get into all this trouble with the internet? Yeah, so looking at the numbers, what is trouble or what does trouble look like? You have the Ipsos research. Uh, this one, I have the numbers of, it's a European one, but 29% of the Europeans are suspicious of the internet and over 86% have reported themselves that they have fallen for fake news at least once. Um, I'm not against the internet. Um, the internet is a great place, uh, but even though it's a great place, it has a deep-rooted issue with trust. Why did that happen? I think it's because trust simply wasn't part of the internet's design. It wasn't needed as the internet was co uh, created to connect computers with computers. And computers, they have no dreams, they don't care about power or self-enrichment. As what I like to say, they have no egos and we people do. Um, but where in society we have all sorts of systems in place uh, to make sure that fraud, manipulation and theft aren't thriving in society. But on the internet, trust isn't part of the design. So uh, you can easily do the manipulation, the theft, the, the, the lying. It's, it's easy there. It's, it's cheap to lie. And um, all those 
troubles on the internet, they echo back on society. So to save the world, we need to fix the internet. And open source software is the way to do so. Bringing transparency and accountability all in an open source way, that, that's what we need to build an internet we can trust. So these are big questions. Do you feel like the world at large, and by that I guess I mean you know, voters and perhaps politicians, just to talk about two groups, uh, the media is a whole other story, but do you feel like is the understanding of how grave and serious this problem is, has it reached a critical threshold now so that things can be done? Or are we now still talking about underground efforts that are not fully understood? And so the gravity of this challenge. It's getting bigger every day. Maybe COVID speed up the process a bit. We're more than ever dependent on the internet. After the Trump election, the question was, what was the impact of media on the outcome of the election? And now uh, we have, that's, it's an ever growing problem. And um, the hard thing is for almost over a decade, but it's especially the last years, we are, as a society, getting aware of the problem, but there aren't so many solutions for that. And finally, solutions from the open source space are coming. So it, every continent, the, the US, but also Europe, they're doing efforts. One of the great pillars of their new horizons, their funding program for research, is trust on the internet. So people and governments are getting more aware than ever. Um, and the fact that from the Ipsos research that people are um, aware that they have fallen for fake news, that makes it top of mind for everyone. So is fake news per se? And first off, how do you define fake news? And secondly, what are some of the other kind of adjacent issues that go into fake news? Because clearly the news item is one thing. So that's perhaps a malicious actor, or sometimes it's just plain, not well-researched stuff. And, and that might be hard to recognize for various reasons. But there are lots of other kinds of problems, uh, interoperability, copyright issues. Like, how, how do you see, like, what what is the problem set, first off, that we're dealing with? So... Um... It depends per continent. So, for example, in uh, the documentary, the After Truth uh, with Craig Silverman, and people, that's mostly about using fake news as a uh, weapon of mass destruction, really, in a way. And one of the quotes from Brock Pierce, that was the, the running candidate for presidency as well, he said, hey, Wars are fought asymmetrically uh, in, in this era. They're, it's not bombs, but it's information and currency that are used to, uh, to make war instead of weapons. And um, to, uh, it, it, it differs for every continent, for every, and even for every individual base, what fake news is about. For some, it's, um, it's a credible person showing an opinion. For others, it's anonymous trolling. So it's such a multi-diversion. Uh, it has so many dimensions to think. So one, one of the issues that it definitely is about, right, is creators and, and whether creators are uh, able to authenticate themselves, uh, monetize what they're doing, and control, to some extent, their own content. So it's not just about fake news, but it's also about 
expression in a certain sense. Like this is very, it's fundamental to, to being a human and to being a democratic citizen in a certain sense. Yeah, and the hard thing with the word fake news is Craig Silverman, he's, most people say he's the one who invented the word fake news, <laughs> uh, the category fake news or the problem definition. But since Trump is using it, Craig doesn't like the word fake news anymore. So uh, as it's kind of, <laughs> even fake news became fake news. <laughs> That's not the exact words he used for that. But um, yeah, so it, it, it gives... It shows how broad the problem space around that misinformation is. All right, so so this is some of the uh, the, the problems, and and I know that you're moving into trying to solve some of this. Uh, as we're getting there, tell me a little bit about schema.org and and some of the the technicalities that go into that go into the internet, I guess, that are relevant yeah. to this uh, categorization and, and taxonomy around content. Yeah, so uh, the thing we... Shall I dive into the blockchain timestamps and then work through the schema? Yeah, that makes yeah, sense. So, so uh, what we want to do is make... The, the dream is to shift from the current internet, which has some flaws, to a trusted web. What is, what is a trusted web? For that, it makes sense to say what trust is or uh, how to achieve trust. What we say is two building blocks, transparency, so how did information change over time, and accountability, being able to verify who the sender of information is. Blockchain was invented uh, 29 years ago, almost 30 years ago, by uh, Scott Sternetta and Stuart Haber to timestamp documents to prove the integrity of information, which could be files, which could be a text, could be anything. And... What does that do? It's a, a document leads to a hash, which is a unique fingerprint, and they store that in a blockchain transaction. Uh, uh, yeah, brilliant public database where they put that thing. From that moment, you can always prove that the information existed in that moment in time. And with the one who signs the uh, blockchain transaction can prove that she or he is the one who signed that transaction. So in an open source manner, you can prove that, yeah, you can bring transparency and accountability. And what we fight for are to achieve trusted web, all information that is vital, like terms and conditions, news outlets, government uh, information, product terms, every information you base decisions on must be transparent and accountable. And those blockchain timestamps are a way to achieve that. So what could that, yeah? Uh, well, I just wanted to ask one thing uh, in order to unpack this. What percentage of information do you foresee as being used for decision-making? If you compare, if you just take the internet right now, because, you know, clearly anytime you're going to change anything on the internet, which, by the way, took some energy to put together in the first place. And, you know, people such as the internet's creators have tried to kind of evolve the internet, but it goes slowly for good reasons, because it's, you know, it's about a lot of standards and without the standards, then people just start doing things that aren't scalable. And then, you know, it forks into things where, where you know, and, 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 you know, if you're going to create something uh, that is scalable to all of the internet, you need to somehow achieve the buy-in. So I was just kind of curious when you just said content that is based for decisions, 
That's an yeah. interesting category of content. How much content is that? Are we talking about? How much are we talking about? Is it like five percent? Is it like it's it's hard to quantify, but I would say um, all news outlets, all um, so for example, there's one big publisher organizations. Uh, most publishers work with them or are members of them. Eight, uh, it's the Van Ifra. They have eighteen thousand members. So let's say you could say the maybe the Alexa top uh, one million websites are. It's not all based for decision-making. You have to strip off entertainment, um, but it's news outlets, it's governments, and then uh, global governments, but also local governments. So it's percent, really a raw estimate, let's say 20%. Well, 20% of the entire internet, if that's what it is, that's the task you have in front of you with your effort. Absolutely, yeah. And what we really want to achieve is in a few years from now, if you, that, that must be the switch in mindset from at least all consumers. If you don't timestamp information as a sender, what are you hiding? You'd be considered a fraud. That's the shift that we all need to make. As consumers, we need to demand transparency and accountability from at least the information that impacts our decisions. Could be voting decisions, that's, we base that often on news, uh, but also buying decisions, terms and conditions, product information. So I asked you about schema.org. How does that get into this, this business? Yeah, so what is a timestamp or what does it look like? For example, on a news outlet, if a uh, if you publish information or a journalist publishes information and updates it two or three hours later, on the news website it says, last edited three hours ago. You could say, wow, thanks for sharing that. That's such transparent. But you could also be a bit suspicious what was there three hours ago that I'm not allowed to see anymore. With timestamps, we make the proof proof of publication and maybe that you are the sender or the journalist or journalist or organization is the sender of the information. So we made kind of a time machine for content. That's the way for consumers, visitors of the site to verify the transparency and the accountability of the content. What we do as well is there's a language that search engines and social media use to digest information on the internet. So uh, to make sense of words, Trond is not just a word, but it's your first name. Um, word proof is not just a word, but it's a company. So schema.org is the website or the language that search engines and social media use. For example, in Google, you see uh, rich information on a company, who the CEO is, what the address is. That's most often, if you see that on the right in the search result, it's based on uh, schema and structured data. What we work on, and we do that with the biggest people in the search engine industry, is making sure that in a standardized way, those timestamps are part of that language, part of schema.org. So not only people, but also search engines and social media can verify uh, the integrity of information. So you used the metaphor watermarking with me earlier. Um, in the olden days, one did, you know, somewhat watermarking of documents was kind of an authentication kind of protocol. How do you foresee, well, let, let me start with this. The effort that you have started, who is involved in this effort and who are the actors that are actually 
currently doing this? I mean, is is any news outlet currently watermarking or timestamping their document with schema and blockchain or or any efforts like that? How how big is this? Uh, you know, how many have you converted? Yeah, so we started the company a, a bit over a year ago. Uh, who's who's involved in the movement? We have uh, the European Commission. There was a, a blockchains for social good competition they did. So five uh, parties were able to win one million dollars or one million million euros, and the recognition of winners in the blockchains for social good competition. Um, one hundred seventy six parties uh, wrote a proposal and we became the absolute number one with 29 and a half out of 30 points. So that's the European Commission saying, hey, we see the trusted web and WordProof as a tool there. Uh, we see that as a solution to the problems the internet face today. So we're super proud of that recognition. Then we have the if you're a WordPress user, some people, 39% uh, of all the websites on the internet use WordPress. On WordPress, you have a tool for search engine optimization, and it's Yoast SEO. Uh, the founder of Yoast SEO is uh, Yoast de Valk and his wife Marike uh, van der Rack. They are investors in, uh, in, in, in WordProof as a company and Trusted Web as a movement as well. And they did the schema.org implementation for 11 million websites. That's 16% of the internet. So, uh, and they deeply care about open source. They are the biggest contributor to WordPress as a software uh, solution uh, after Automatic, which is the commercial uh, entity behind WordPress. Hmm. So their efforts are huge. It's as far as I know, six or seven people working full time on the WordPress software, on the open source software. So, so, so then on for for uh, for WordPress use case, it's basically websites, company websites, and blog. It started as a blogging tool uh, as well. So yeah. it's blogs and websites, and they're trying to authenticate the the nature of of what goes on on that platform. For yeah. uh, for other more specified use cases you i think notarizing documents would be an obvious one but but for all of these there are alternatives prior to blockchain isn't there i mean there are other ways to authenticate than just go through a blockchain approach yes absolutely so um the thing is blockchain if, if you compare it to uh, a notary what you can, what, what you actually want to do with all pieces of content is bring it to a notary, which puts a timestamp on it, and then, yeah, then it's safe. Your copyright is protected. It's verified that it's uh, really coming from you. But the notary has two downsides. It's expensive, and it takes time. So uh, the time, it, it's at least a day, and it's expensive. In the Netherlands, it depends what a notary is, depends per country. Uh, but for us, it starts at $1,100 uh, to notarize a thing. Then you have a check and an archive and stuff like that. What, what we do with blockchain timestamps is the same in a second and in a fraction of the cost. It's just a few cents to place a timestamp. And... Um, and it's trustless. So there's no trust needed in, for example, WordProof as a company to verify for someone that the timestamp has been placed in that blockchain. So for the first time in history, it's possible in an open source way to have the power of notary fast and cheap. So this is like a birth certificate for, for a digital document. 
Yeah, you could say that. And um, and it's revisions. So, for example, um, when an article is updated, you want to timestamp it again, uh, but you want to still respect its history to show, for example, to a person, but also a search engine, that the information existed in the earlier moment, in the moment uh, before the last revision was placed. But there's a limit to this, right? I mean, I co-create documents at work and I co-create documents with my editors and sometimes I co-create documents with my own mind, right? And it starts out very yeah, yeah, simple yeah. and I wouldn't maybe, I wouldn't want everybody to see every aspect of my drafts, you know, when my thoughts aren't really well put together. So are we talking purely for the public space here or do you see a role of this in drafting of legislation uh, in earlier stages of, of documents? That's a super interesting question, and it depends per use case. So, for example, um, we are timestamping. As we speak currently, we uh, we onboarded one of the biggest publishers, NRC, in, in the Netherlands. We are timestamping their uh, one million ar uh, articles in their archive uh, currently. So, um, but what we are discussing there around the use case for news outlets, some articles are based on articles from a press agency who do uh, the research, they buy it there, and they use it as a source. They verify uh, the headlines and base articles on that. So the question is, should the press agency timestamp their content as well, although they do not uh, publish it for the broader public. And yeah, we have a discussion there with the press agency and the answer we're shifting towards yes. Why? Because in logistics, you have a supply chain, a, a chain of all players involved, holding each other accountable. What we say for information and timestamping is true timestamps, you can truly represent your sources. So, for example, who worked on it? Uh, who 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 was the journalist who found the facts? And you can totally through timestamping, everyone can put their fingerprint or autograph under. Hey, I have seen this. I've written this. I've based. Uh, this is the source for this. This is the source for that. There are timestamping matters for sourcing, and you only put on the blockchain, you only put the hash of information, the fingerprint of the information and not the full information. So it can be a way to prove where the, that some people are involved without revealing the content itself. So I'm just trying to figure out how the European Commission or national parliaments would use this because there's obviously a drafting process that's like semi-public and there's a consultation phase for for many of these documents and it would be interesting if you could trace at what points in the legislative process were other actors involved saw the actual document although i guess copies of the document could always circulate so i mean how can you how can you sort of certify that this is the only thing going on because i could I could readily see that circumvention of this. I mean, and, and I'm sure it happens, you know, daily because you just take a copy of the document that's not living in any public internet space. So you, you'd have to basically DRM or you like put some sort of blocker on this document so no one could get it out of this system for, for this timestamping to be truly accurate in the public space, wouldn't you? Yeah, it depends. So 
The timestamp is just a timestamp. And with a timestamp, you can prove that the information existed in a specific moment in time and you can connect identity or identities to it. Ideally, there must be a whole ecosystem. So a policymaker must require some information to be timestamped. A search engine must give value to a timestamp. So it's, it's, a, um, it's, it's, it's a whole ecosystem with all stakeholders on the internet or in doing business as a whole, attributing value to those timestamps. But I'm curious, could you actually timestamp people who are just watching a document? Or does it necessarily have that you have to be altering it? Because, you know, you see what I'm saying, like in, in a very, very high stakes document, the question in, in top level security, for instance, right, is who, you know, for your eyes only, right? So who has access? Let's say, you know, some US presidential document that yeah. has to go through an approval process and eventually, you know, affects lives on the world yeah. stage. Who saw that document when? Who approved it? But also who just saw it? And, and in the European Commission, like some massive new legislation, who has seen this document and yeah. at what times? That, that's not our use case, but it's massively interesting. And the technology of cryptography, so encrypting and decrypting, is, it's, it's, it's invented for this, for bringing integrity to flows of information. Um, the use case we focus on and Trusted Web focuses on is really on mostly on the publicly facing content, um, making yeah, the bringing accountability and transparency to the content. That so let's uh, move a little publicly. to the future of, of this internet. You know, if you yeah. uh, forecast kind of what's going to happen in this space, and you know, you are one player, um, the European Commission. There's others. There are a lot of actors. Obviously, the big publishers uh, are interested in this. Big tech overall, they're all publishers. Or I mean, yeah. that's the discussion whether they are or they're not. But they're, mm -hmm. they're sort of publishers of web content in any way. You know, whether they're legally publishers or not. Yeah. How is this thing going to evolve? Yeah, there's technology, so, there's legislation, there's the user reactions to all this, there's the implementation challenges. You are a little startup. Um, how is this all going to play out? Yeah, so what you will see is, what my forecast will be is an internet where if you don't timestamp your information, you'd be considered a fraud. And timestamping has two aspects, the transparency one, we discussed that, and the accountability one. What we are educating the policymakers on is that you have the unregulated internet. Then they did in Europe an attempt to improve the internet with GDPR. I always ask, start my presentation with, who likes GDPR? Nobody in the world likes GDPR. But the intention behind it was, in a way, wonderful. We give the citizens of Europe, at least to start with, better rights on the internet, better control over their data. And what we educate the government and the policymakers is that the trusted web with GDPR, we made the data of the person a bit better. Secondly, all the information that reaches a person uh, must be transparent and accountable so they can find truth uh, by holding people accountable, by holding senders of information accountable and by bringing transparency. On the internet, we see that what we expect, how we educate uh, big tech, the search engines and social media is 
the more transparent information is, the higher it should rank in a search engine algorithm. The more transparent it is, the higher it should end up in the timeline. The more accountability a sender takes, the further it can distribute on social media. So if you have identity, identity and content is super interesting. So you have information that um, you can timestamp without an identity. You can timestamp with a government identity and you have some steps in between. So a LinkedIn account is a lot of accountability because yeah, if it exists for uh, five years or longer and you have a few, uh, lots of connections, Probably Tront is Tront. Uh, then you have a Twitter account where you can be a bit more anonymous. So you have anonymous timestamps, you have a government, full-fledged government uh, timestamp and everything in between. How we educate social media and policymakers about what they should demand from social media is the more accountability, the farther information can, can spread. So um, if you have a timestamp but um, no identity, Everything can be published, but only for your friends. If you have uh, a bit of accountability, it's friends and friends of friends. And starting with a LinkedIn-ish connection or identity tied to it, and it's at least quite sure that it's you, from that, you can go viral, the information. So there's always freedom of speech, but there's not always a freedom of reach. You must put reputation on the line to get freedom of reach. And with that in place, the dynamics of the internet, dynamics of the internet will change towards a place where it's more about people connecting people, connecting people with people with, with less noise. You have to earn the freedom of reach. Exactly. But today, a big cause of misinformation is just opinions going viral as if they are uh, as if they are uh, information sent by the by a big news outlet it's just opinions going viral it's one of the biggest causes and sometimes even unintentional it's one of the biggest causes of misinformation you have just made the most cogent argument for the difference between an editor and a publisher here because a publisher really is just whoever actually creates the distribution but what you are talking about is the important of the editorial filter which is figuring out whether these expressions really deserve to reach an audience and that is i think a fundamental task in society which we have completely neglected and which many publishers currently neglect and certainly a lot of big tech companies that are de facto they are in as in very important respects they are publishers perhaps not in, in legal terms yet but they i guess people would say are hiding behind the freedom of speech to just let this sort of slide why is that argument not going to fly because the easiest right now is to just say, yeah, Sebastian, I hear you, European Commission, GDPR, it's all nice. Like government can say what they want. We are going to march on, you know, under the crux of sort of freedom. We are just going to let people say what they want, whoever they are, and we're not going to bother too much. And in America, the freedom argument is extremely strong. How are you going to yeah. reach Americans? of a certain political 
uh, dent, you know, 50% of Americans that are very, very strong uh, on the freedom argument. There's another 50%, arguably, also much more on the freedom side of the argument than, than anybody in Europe. How are you going to reach that entire continent with this line of thinking? Yeah, the, the hard thing is, it's the, the question is, if people are really, uh, not all are welcoming a truthful internet. Some are just searching for confirmation of their, of their, uh, of their way of thinking. So what I expect to be the early adopters of those technology are the ones who are eager to find truth. And for us, it's we're currently doing research on fake news and possible solutions for that. And uh, I don't have all the answers yet, but we are doing it in the US and in, uh, the Euro in Europe. And one of the questions is, where do you expect the solution for misinformation come from? And I'm really looking forward to learn. Uh, so maybe we could uh, catch up later and uh, discuss the answers for that. The thing is, for us, starting in Europe, that makes sense in a way. As uh, what did what did Europe do with GDPR? They said, "Hey, we introduced we introduced GDPR, and if you want to sell to the do business with the Europeans, you need to comply." And from there, uh, Canada now has a kind of a GDPR-ish solution and other uh, Singapore has. And it started with Europe in a way leading by example. I don't want to claim leading by example as GDPR had a lot of mistakes and it was really ugly in how it was done. But Europe took the lead by example approach uh, by at least trying it. And... Um, yeah, that, that's how I see this evolve. And that's, for example, we work with several search engines. But what I'd love to see is, so for example, in ranking, in search engine result page, what, what I expect in a few years from now is that you see in the search result, uh, hey, this one is timestamped and this one isn't. Will Google be the first who do that? Maybe, but maybe it could be one of the smallers who want the smaller search engines who wants to lead by example there and use it transparency and accountability as preconditions as kind of their unique selling points. With that in place, if we have it with a small search engine, we can show to policymakers because, for example, Facebook, do they really want to ban misinformation from the platform? You could say yes, but arguably there's there's a case for no as well, as it's in many cases profitable. So Facebook has um, has kind of an interest in explaining to regulators that it's impossible to regulate everything on the platform. Where if we work with smaller search engines, smaller social media companies, and implement this vision in an open source way, bringing transparency and accountability, we learn, we educate the, uh, the regulators by leading by example, showing, hey, it isn't impossible to bring transparency and accountability and there, therefore making it possible for consumers to find truth. So it will be about educating, onboarding small communities, uh, educating the regulators, and step-by-step, step, the trusted web will unfold. But that's the order. 
Sebastian, this brings me to a question. How important do you really think search engines will be 10 years from now? I mean, it's very easy to assume that players that had an early lead on the internet will have an early lead forever. But as we know, you know, the Mosaic browser and, you know, the early Yahoo categorizations of the internet were quite different. They were more lexical. They were more kind of dictionary type, uh, semantically organized information. And uh, and then the search engines sort of took over with with their kind of like random logic of, you know, whatever sticks in your head, paste it into an empty search window. I've always been very frustrated with the implementation that a search engine, any search engine did. It, it doesn't reflect how I see information. In this next generation of the internet, do you see a place for search engines? Um, that's a super interesting question. I don't expect I, you to kind of maybe have the absolute answer here, but the reason I'm asking it is, even if you succeed, my sense is it won't be 20% of the internet adopting your solutions anytime soon. But it is possible that reasonable people, and by that I mean sort of voting age adults who are kind of hopefully regulating this world and, and policymakers and maybe media and large organizations will realize that if we're going to be serious about this, we need to change. And by we, even if you got zero zero point one percent of the internet to agree to this you would almost not need search engines anymore because you would have sort of said it's sort of like think about the paper-based media yeah. 50 years ago you, you don't need a search engine to figure out that if you really want to read news in chicago you know there's a paper for that if you want to read you know if you want to understand what goes on in new york there's the new york times i mean is there a new world coming that goes back to the old world. And I don't mean one-to-one. -one, but, you know, because what you're advocating is maybe we don't really need, actually, all this superfluous expression. So the ultimate consequence of your argument here of a, you have to deserve the freedom to reach, is that a striking imp implementation of that would be that not a lot of publications really deserve the reach that they currently have. Because yeah. I think most people are assuming information is just going to continue and continue to grow. But what if we say, no, that's but, meaningless. We're certainly not going to fund it. We're going to defund that kind of expression globally. I Yeah, it's a super interesting question. And what I foresee is that Consumers, citizens, uh, buyers, uh, inhabitants of planet Earth will have way more options to filter. So, for example, on their browser site or in their phone or wherever or in their glasses, they can say, I only want information that has been timestamped, which shows me revisions and where the sender takes full accountability. Still, is the one newspaper in the city the trustworthy one, or maybe there are two or three. So I still, to form my opinion, uh, usually to, I, I don't know the exact number, but between five and uh, seven news articles needs to be uh, read before an opinion is formed in many cases. So that differs per country, but um, people still want to do research. People still want to find those five articles, need to find those five articles in a way. So there will 
in my opinion, always be at least algorithms needed to discover the content you want to digest. And the question is, the really interesting question there, if we go a bit more philosophical, is where those algorithms run? Do they need to be in a search engine? Do they need to be on a social media platform? Or do they need to be in my browser on, on the client side? Well, exactly, because that's sort of how this problem starts, right? That we all think that we have these personalized filters and we all want to believe that we are so advanced about this. And then we all, I think, have discovered that we have been, for the last decade, subject to commercial algorithms that have fed us things. So you think you're searching in, in a search engine, whether it starts with a G or with other names, but really you're not searching in that in a search engine, you're searching in a very specified algorithmic domain that had preconceived notions about what you as a user are going to find relevant. and Which helps first, you too, in a way. Which helps that's you. <laughs> so that's the challenge. It that, does that makes help it so, you, we, but it doesn't make it transparent. No, not at all. It's, it's the opposite. And um, it helps us so much that we that many of us don't care about the privacy or distrust or whatever, because we get that, that car with a U uh, when we push one button and it gives us so much convenience. It's, um, it's utopia and dystopia at the same time. That was one of the last sentences from the, uh, from the, the social dilemma. It, it gives us both. And that's, that's what makes it so hard. But, with transparency and accountability moving towards a trusted web, it, it can make finding truth so much easier if that's a default for an important part of the internet. And not everyone will filter and say, I, I want my sender to take accountability, but if you want to, you can. And if you don't as a sender, a consumer can say, okay, then I go to another sender who takes accountability. So it gives an option for integrity by design instead of just hoping that it exists. Sebastian, this has been fascinating. I think it's a fascinating conversation and I think it doesn't end here. And you have created yourself a gargantuan, gargantuan task. I think so, but uh, we're... We're we're with um, we're surrounded. We I'm I'm truly it's truly an honor to be on your show and have the discussion together. The thing is, so many people are involved in making this work from the open source space, from the the pre conversation we had on DRM. It's it touches everything, and we truly have the opportunity as a society to fix the deep rooted issues of the internet. And yeah keeps me awake at night and it's, it's, such, it's such an interesting uh, topic space. And there are solutions that's, yeah, it, it's not just problems, there, it's a solution direction, the blockchain timestamps. So yeah, uh, it's, it's such fun to work on it. Well, congratulations on what you've achieved so far. Let's uh, stay in touch because I think this, this discussion uh, is, is gonna evolve and uh, it'll involve a lot of very big actors if you you know in order to succeed with this so so i shall be tracking this thanks so much Tron, for the super interesting questions and conversation and uh, let's build the trusted web together all right you have just listened to episode 77 of the futurized podcast with host Tronar Nevenheim, futurist and author the topic was how to fix fake news 
Our guest was Sebastian von der Lanz, founder of WordProof, the startup using blockchain to authenticate content on the internet. In this conversation, we talk about how to fix fake news, players in the internet content industry, emerging challenges such as digital rights management, interoperability, fake news, copyright infringement, and protection and trust on the internet. We discuss the potential solutions and uh, also the emerging use cases. We look at the structural forces and we discuss the future of the internet. My takeaway is that fixing fake news will mean needing to adapt each of the disruptive forces, technological, regulatory, business model related, and social fixes. Thanks for listening. If you like the show, subscribe at futurize.co or in your preferred podcast player and rate us with five stars. If you like this topic, you may enjoy other episodes of Futurized, such as episode four, which is on the future of remote activism, or episode six, which is on surveillance capitalism, episode 25 on the future of enterprise blockchain, or episode 52 on the future of peer-to-peer. Futurized, preparing you to deal with disruption.